right. It's good to be here. First time to preach in the new space. It's really fun to be here. Um, I'm grateful for this moment. I was talking to a friend of mine in Texas this week, and uh, he's also a pastor, and I was telling him we're going to be inside for the first time in 21 months. And he, uh, he actually works, he's planting a church in the PCA among refugees. He does really hard work. Um, and he said to me, is there any precedent that you know of in North America for a church worshiping outside for 21 months or online? And, and he's, he's been around the block. I don't know of any. I mean, there may be other ones that have been uh, outside or online for 21 months. Uh, but I don't know of any other church that has walked through uh, what we've walked through, and we have seen the Lord provide time and time again, but we have been in a vulnerable place as a congregation over the last uh, two years since COVID set in. We, we've been in a truly vulnerable place. Um, you may have a difficult time personally connecting with feeling like you're vulnerable. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but as a church, we've been in a truly vulnerable place. Uh, where we didn't know how God was going to provide, where we were completely knocked off of our game plan, worshiping in Davis Drive, and and had to go back to the, the drawing board. And the Lord has really um, met us. I mean, we were in a vulnerable place back to that January Zoom meeting uh, with the financial graph dropping off the side of the earth, uh, looking at how are we going to get in this place, uh, looking at potentially a $400,000 shortfall, and the Lord has, has brought us here. Uh, we're still in a bit of a financially vulnerable place, but nothing exactly like we were back then. Um, and so the Lord has been just so faithful to us. Uh, maybe the vulnerability you experience, though, is not just in our church. Maybe you feel vulnerable emotionally. Maybe you feel vulnerable uh, psychologically or spiritually right now. Um, I wonder if you can relate to this. The sermon this morning is called Jesus for the Vulnerable. And as we connect with Christ and his heart for us and our vulnerability, the Lord then calls us out from that place to be able to minister to the vulnerable. But I've been thinking about this for us as a church right now. I have heard the word from you and from other people and just in general in our culture right now more than ever before, I've heard people saying the word, I just feel exhausted. I just feel like I'm at the end. I feel like I'm I'm just, I'm pushed beyond my limit. But this word exhausted, I hear that from time to time. I, mean, I hear people say that. But I've been hearing people say that, that I feel exhausted, who are in the top like 99 percentile of the most competent, energetic, and capable people on earth. And I'm hearing them say I'm exhausted. I think what we've been through since March 12, March 12 2020, as a culture and as a church and as a people, we have been pushed to a point where we really need rest. We really need rest. There's a reason why the book Gentle and Lowly that we're reading in our community groups and Bible studies, there's a reason why it's the number one selling book ever that Crossway has published. Gentle and Lowly. Because Jesus Christ, who suffered for us and then says to us in our vulnerability and exhaustion, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, we collectively cry out, yes, Lord, please. That is what I need. That is what we need. Listen, Trinity Park, we need a place. We need this place 
We need a place of stability. Obviously, this building can't actually give us stability. Jesus Christ gives us stability. But we need stability. We need to rest. We need to recover as a congregation. We need to come into a place where every Sunday is just not quite so much work so that we can rest for a little while. I think that's God's will for us. That's finally, you know, like, Finally, we're in a place where I believe that we can be led into a time where we can rest and recover and have a time of stability. But listen, we don't work to rest. This is a really important distinction. You don't work so that you have to rest. You don't do six days of labor so that you're so exhausted that you then rest because you have to. We need to get to the point where we see rest as connected to our work so that we When we rest, we actually rest because God, from that place of rest, and that we're going to experience as a congregation in this space, from this place of recovery, he's going to call us out into new things. He's going to call us out to be able to bless our community, to bless the vulnerable around us in ways that we've never been able to do before because we just haven't had the bandwidth or the resources to do it. So today in the sermon, we're going to look at Isaiah 42 and look at how Jesus meets us in our own vulnerability So that we can then, as we recover in God's presence, we can then be called out to follow Christ and minister to the vulnerable. Jesus meets us in our own vulnerability so that we can then go out and minister to others in our community and in the world and in the church who are vulnerable and need hope in Jesus Christ. That's where we're going this morning. So first of all, looking at Isaiah 42, we're going to look at God's servant, which is Jesus We're going to look at the servant's identity. He's called God's servant in verse 1. We're first of all going to look at the servant's identity. Then we're going to look at his mission, the servant's mission. And then we're going to look at the servant's ministry. So his identity, his mission, and his ministry. All to the end that we would be following Jesus in this new place. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that this morning there's so many um, thoughts running through our head Parents have kids inside for the first time in a long time, and even though it's good to be inside, it's also weird because we hear their noises, and they can't just run around in the grass and in the parking lot, and um, we just have a lot going on in our hearts and our minds as Christmas is coming, but I pray that you would enable us in this moment to be able to focus on you and see you, Jesus, the one who served us in our vulnerability so that we would be able to follow you and serve others in their vulnerability. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, we see the servant's identity in verse 1. God is telling us about the one through whom he's going to bring restoration to the world. He says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. God is saying, look, you need to look at one person. One person who is the one who is called to bring you salvation, to bring you hope in your place of vulnerability, and that person is Jesus Christ. We learn about his identity. He says he's the one who God upholds. Jesus was in the grip of the Father as he went out on his mission of incarnation to save us. He says, I have chosen him. He's the one who has been uniquely picked by God for the task. There's no other one but Jesus who can save us. 
He says, I delight in him. Literally in the Hebrew, this means the one in whom God's soul delights. And what comes from the soul, it comes straight out of the heart of the Father. So Jesus is the one, the chosen one, whom God upholds in his hand. And Jesus comes directly out of the heart of the Father into the world. And God says, I've also put my spirit, the Father says, I put my spirit on him. Meaning he has been endowed with the presence and the power of of the whole Trinity to accomplish his mission. Jesus alone is God's servant. We learn in Philippians 2 that Jesus was in very nature God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but he made himself a servant and being made in human likeness. He made himself a servant and being made in human likeness, he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And Jesus is the servant that Isaiah is prophesying about in Isaiah 42. So he's God's servant. Jesus is the preeminent servant. And he's been sent into the world on mission, on a mission. So then we, let's talk about the servant's mission. He will bring, it says in verse 1, 3, and 4, he will bring justice. He will bring justice to the nations. The end of verse 1, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nation. Verse 3, in faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. Jesus' mission is clear, absolutely clear. He has come to bring justice into the world. So justice is a word that has been used more often than ever in my lifetime. I'm 45. I've never heard the word justice used more often than I have in the last 18 months. What does justice mean biblically? We're going to get into that for a minute. There are two ways to think about God's justice. There's a primary way and there's a secondary way. Primarily, justice in the primary sense is God's unchanging truth. It is the unchangeable attribute of God's character that God is righteous and God is just. And he means that the world would reflect who he is. But primarily, what is justice? Justice is who God is. Justice is God's own perfect character. Secondarily then, justice is truth about the Lord, God's righteousness and justice then applied in the world. We see that in verse 5. This is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. God created the world, and he means for the world that he created the human beings and the whole creation to reflect his character and his justice. He created us in his image that we would be image bearers, that we would reflect the justness of God into the world. We have to reflect back on Genesis 1 to understand something about what God wants for the world. Human beings were given a design and a calling to reflect the righteousness and the justness of God to the world and to all creation. When human beings treat one another in a way that's consistent with who God is, then justice happens in the world. But we know that after Genesis 1 and 2 came Genesis 3, and the world has been broken, and humanity has been broken, so that we no longer reflect that justice of God. 
in the world. So that when we have vulnerable people, and us among them as vulnerable people, rather than sacrificing ourselves for the good of others, we don't do that naturally as human beings. Instead, we take. Instead, we, we hoard. Instead, we think of ourselves first. Listen to a few statistics about what's happening today in our world and, and the lack of justice or the lack of rightness that is happening in the world around us. Slavery. You know, we partner with IJM. The International Labor Organization estimates that over 40 million people are in some form of slavery today. Others would mark that around 50. If you're enslaved, that means you could be exploited for domestic work, for work in construction or agriculture, sexual exploitation, forced labor by state authorities or national authorities, and or being forced into marriage. 40 to 50 million people are finding themselves in that place right now. Refugees, according to the UN Department on Refugees, there are 82.4 million people presently who have been forcibly displaced from their homes. 48 million are displaced but still in their homelands, and 34 million are refugees outside of their homelands. The greatest ethnic population of refugees are Syrian, 7 million, Venezuelan, 4 million, Afghanistan, 2.5 million, South Sudan, 2 million, and Myanmar, 1 million. The last statistic I'll give you is on orphans. This one brought me to tears as I was reading about it. This one brought me to tears. There are 153 million orphans in the world today. And every day, 39,000 children are forced from their homes because of the death of a parent, a family illness, or abuse, or abandonment. 39,000 every single day. So God created humanity to reflect his image, his rightness, his righteousness, but yet we see this disparity. I could mention those who lack food and water, the unborn, the racially oppressed, or others. It's clear that God's primary justice is not what human beings experience today in the world. Not many of us experience that, what God created us to be. So as faithful Christians, we simply have to not just talk about justice. We need to talk about it correctly, but we also need to be acting on God's justice to make the world, to to have the human beings in the world, in particular, treating one another more and more according to what God wants. Sometimes the secondary sense of God's justice is called restorative justice or rectifying justice. That simply means that God's character is not glorified by what is happening in the world among the human beings of the world. And so flowing out of God's character, secondarily, what are we called to do as a church? We are called to rectify or restore what we can by preaching the gospel, by sharing the good news, we'll get to that in a minute, and by doing acts of mercy and justice for people to rectify or make whole their situation in Jesus' name. There are three references to the type of justice that Jesus brings to the world. First of all, in verse 1, it says there's a justice that is universal in scope. He will bring justice to the nations. Verse 4 says to the coastlands or the islands, that there's this extensiveness to the the justice and the rectifying of humanity that Jesus has come to bring to the world. This is important because Israel may have thought that maybe only God was concerned about them because oftentimes Israel was only concerned about themselves. And remember, they're receiving this prophecy in exile 
They don't really care about the Babylonians, even though God does. And God is saying, no, my will is for you. Yes, Israel, it's for you, my church. But it's also for the world. It's for everybody that I created in my image. I am not glorified when the image of God is denigrated. I'm not glorified when the situation around the world is what it is. So it's universal in scope. It's also faithful in character. It says in verse 3, in faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Though Jesus is subject to the same pressures we are, he will not fail to bring true restoration into the world. And finally, it's a justice that is firmly and finally established in verse 4, till he establishes justice on the earth. On that, one, on that day, that final day, when we will see him and he will come again for us, he will not fail to totally restore all of creation. So who is God most concerned about in his mission of rectifying justice? There are four groups in the Old Testament that come up. And Nick Walterstorff, he's a philosopher, theologian at Yale University, has called this group the quartet of the vulnerable. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. In our society today, we should also include the unborn, those with special needs, the elderly, single mothers, and those who are victims of racism. Time and time again, the Bible is concerned about the vulnerable. God's heart, Jesus Christ, is concerned about the vulnerable, those who have the least amount of power. This morning, I was reading in my daily time with the Lord in Psalm 139. It's one of my go-to psalms, famous psalm. And in the middle of the psalm, I was teaching you a couple weeks ago about a chiasm. Someone said to me, you know what, that was really helpful for me uh, to understand. I had never heard that before. A chiasm in the Bible is when, particularly you find it in Psalms, you might find it in a, a place like Isaiah, something that's a little more poetic. What you have is on the outside of the psalm or the poetry, you have like the bread, like the outside of the sandwich. And, and the end and the beginning relate to each other. And then you have... Uh, the, the ingredients, and then in the middle you have the meat. And this is the meat of Psalm 139. It's well known to us. God says, for I formed you, excuse me, David says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when there was yet none of them. David is saying in the midst of this moment, when he's worried about his enemies, he's saying, God, I know you'll take care of me because when I was in the most vulnerable place, and the most vulnerable place you can ever be is in your mother's womb. You have no power. The most vulnerable place you can ever be is in your mother's womb. And David says, God took care of me. And so if God took care of me there, then I know he will take care of me now. And if God formed me there, if he formed the substance of my life, and he numbered my days then God will take care of me now. We also learn that God creates life. God gives his image to us in our mother's womb. 
God cares about the vulnerable. Why? Why is this his mission? Because he created us. And he means to make good on his creation. He created us with design and dignity. And so when we read statistics about orphans and slaves and refugees and the unborn and those subject to racist attacks, God is moved not because it's a terrible statistic. He's moved because he created every person. And he created them to have purpose and dignity. Why? To glorify him. And he, he marked every human being with his image so that we would glorify him. Every one of you and every human being. So when God thinks of justice, he thinks, and he thinks of rectifying justice, he thinks, I want the world to reflect me the way that I created them to be. These vulnerable people matter to me because I have a purpose, a dignifying purpose for every one of them. That is the mission of God. That is the mission of God through the servant Jesus Christ. That's why he came for the world. He came to save us from our sins. And in so doing, he came to transform us so that we would go out in mission to live for the rectifying of the vulnerable in the world around us, both through evangelism and through deeds of mercy. But we have to ask ourselves the question that if that's what's on the heart of God in Isaiah 42, that a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, a bruised reed he will not break, that when God looks at people in the world and he's so moved by them, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we moved? Are we moved like that? When we read Isaiah 42, are we moved like God is moved? Because honestly, many times I'm not, and you aren't either. This is not a guilt trip, okay? This is us just being real, okay? So what do we do? What do we do because our hearts often do not align with the heart of God in this area? Well, let's keep on looking at Jesus. Let's look at the servant's ministry. How did Jesus live and what did he do? How did he live and what did he do? He first of all brought rectifying justice or restorative justice in the way that he lived. Verse 2, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Here we have a leader, the leader, who is not arrogant. He is humble. He is not aggressive. He is self-defacing. We rarely see this kind of leadership in the world today unfortunately. He's not ostentatious or domineering. He's quiet. He's patient. He's unthreatening. That's one way that he lived. It's remarkably breathtaking and breath-giving to look at Jesus. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What does this mean? They describe the vulnerable. They describe those who are at the end, who have been crushed. A bruised reed, we don't know how it came to be bruised. We don't know how it came to be crushed. But now it seems from a human perspective, a bruised reed from a human perspective is useless. There's nothing you can really do with it. So we don't really normally care about it. A smoldering wick is in danger of being, <laughs> smoldering wick, um, I'm watching these, by the way. I've, I've seen this movie before, uh, so keeping a close eye. Um, a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. I might in a minute um, if it gets too close to the wood there, but metaphorically speaking, 
we're all, we're all down to the, to the end. A lot of us are anyway. Jesus will not snuff you out. He will not. No one is so useless or so squelched or so pushed beyond their limit. He cannot bring them back to full restoration. Where our tendency as human beings is actually not to help the weak, but to persecute them, to make their lives even harder, treat them as a liability. Jesus comes from a totally different point of view. He aligns himself with the vulnerable. He is for the vulnerable. He loves the vulnerable. So that's how we live. Now let's look at what Jesus did. We find out more about that in 6 through 8. What did he do to bring rectifying justice to the world? Verse 6, this is God the Father speaking to the Son. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Again, that word is very closely related to justice. I have called you in righteousness. I've called you to take our character. Jesus is our righteousness. He is called to bring the righteousness of God back into the world. There's no human being before Jesus came. There is no human being and after he came beside Jesus who represents the rightness of God in the world. None. none. God looked. He can't find anybody. And so Jesus is the one human being in the world who represents the full-on righteousness of God and brings the righteousness of God back into creation. Outside of Jesus, injustice reigns, but through him, primary justice, righteousness comes into the world. But we needed more than that. We needed more than an example more than a leader who would show us the way, we needed someone who would actually change us. I mean, I could read all the books on Jesus in the world, all the, the movies. I mean, you could even get translated somehow in a time machine back to, t- back to where the disciples lived and walk with them. And if all you get is an example of Jesus' righteousness, it's not going to be enough. We can't do it. We can't work hard enough. I can't res- reshape my life, reframe, pivot. I can't do it. So we need Jesus to do more than that. We need him to not just be our righteousness, we need him to be our covenant. That's what we learn about next. We need God not just to show us the way, but to be the way, to redeem us from our sins so we can become like him. So it says there, let me find that to you. Verse 6, I will give you as a covenant for the people. A covenant. He makes Jesus Christ a covenant for us. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus died on the cross, He died for our sins so that the covenant means if we trust in him, if we trust in his substitutionary atonement for us, that God looks at the son and has a promise for us that if we trust in him, if we trust in his blood, then his blood, his perfect righteousness shed for us will change our lives so that Jesus' death on our behalf, even though we deserve to, to pay the penalty for our sin, Instead, Jesus pays the penalty, and God's covenant with us is if we look to the Son and live, then we will be forgiven, and not just forgiven, which is amazing, forgiven of your sins, but you'll be changed so that you can live in a transformed way. And the third thing we see here is not just our, he's our righteousness and our covenant, but he's our liberator. This made Anne tear up when she was reading it, where we learned that that God opens the eyes of the blind. He's a light to the nations. He brings out from the prisoners, the prisoners from the dungeon, those who sit in darkness. So what this means is that God leads us out and he leads us into a place of transformation and new potential so that we can live differently. So that we can live differently, actually. We can, over time, morph and change and be transformed. 
into the image of Jesus. So we've seen how he lived, we've seen what he did, but we need to pause for a minute. This is so important. I want to ask you the question, where do you fit in Isaiah 42? Where do you fit? When you hear sermons preached about the vulnerable, do you see the vulnerable as a group of people who are outside of you that you then go and help and you enter into the world of the vulnerable and then you leave it? Or do you see yourself as one of the vulnerable? Do you see yourself in the group? So that when the Bible talks about vulnerable people, smoldering wicks, bruised reeds, people pushed to the limit, people who really without or without hope, save in his sovereign mercy, do you see yourself as a vulnerable person? It makes all the difference in the world. Listen, I don't know your economic situation. You may indeed be in a physically, financially, relationally vulnerable place. You may not be. You may be in a place where financially you're doing pretty well. You feel like you got good relationships. Your body's pretty healthy. Um, that's great. But let's ask a question here. What if you have enough money in the bank, you have enough clothes to wear, food to eat, clean water to drink, and a family around you? You should be really grateful for those blessings. But that's not all you were created for. There are people who have all that. They have a good job. They have a car. They have money in the bank. They have a PlayStation or an Xbox. They have a Switch. They have an iPhone or an Android. They may have really nice versions of all those things. And yet they go to bed at night and they're like, why am I so miserable? Why am I still so needy? Well, it's because you weren't created for any of those things. Man, if it was that easy, a car, an iPhone, a switch, we'd all figure out ways to get one if we don't have them yet. If that's all you need is a bunch of stuff and you're actually going to be all right, I mean, wow, a lot more Americans would be all right. But we're not. The truth is you can have all those things, all those things I mentioned, and some of those things are really good things. In fact, all of them could be good if you have your heart in the right place with them. But none of them are going to satisfy your soul, not a single one. In fact, they could endanger your soul. If you think to yourself, wow, I just can't figure it out. I've got all this stuff, and you're putting your hope in the stuff. You're, if you're there, you're, you're just not getting the fact that you were created for more than that. You were created for God. You're in a vulnerable spiritual place. Maybe you're in a vulnerable place in other ways. We've been in a vulnerable place as a church. I want you to embrace your vulnerability. If you're, if you're the type of person that just resists it, to, I mean, there are people out there that will just do anything but say, man, I really have need, I'm really needy. I'm telling you, the pathway to joy and freedom and grace from God is to say, I'm vulnerable. I, it's me. I'm in, the, I'm in the quartet of the vulnerable. I, I'm there. I, I need you, God. I, I'm not just going to go in and help vulnerable people. I'm going to, I'm vulnerable. I need help. Because let me tell you, if you are the type of person who goes in and helps people and comes out, and you think, I'm, you know, I'm good. I don't need help. You know what that's going to do? One, it's going to either lead you to pride, where you're like, wow, I feel so much better about myself. I'm really a good person. Or it's going to make you feel worse. You're going to go in there and be like, man, it does, 
what could I do? These, these needs are awful. What, what could I possibly do about 153 million orphans? It's going to crush you. But if you go in as one of the vulnerable who has been loved from God, received love from Jesus Christ, received grace in your vulnerability, you can go in not as one saying, look at what I can give you. You can come in saying, I'm one, I've received this from God, I'm among you, let me help you side by side instead of top down. So important. In fact, don't help, don't try to serve people until you see yourself as a vulnerable person. It feels patronizing. And we all, we all have needs. Just because you have an iPhone and a Switch doesn't mean that you have less needs than that person. We all have needs from the Lord. Deep, deep needs. Experiencing God's love for us and our real vulnerability transforms our lives. And we can become those people who are actually more just than we were before. We can become more righteous than we were before. Not so that God will look at us and say, wow, now I love you. Well, the only way to become more just or more righteous is looking to God in our vulnerability and God loving us, and then we serve other people not so that God will love us, but because he already has, because he's already given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. So if you're, if you're there and you see yourself as a vulnerable person, we're a vulnerable church, and we, you are receiving help from God in your vulnerability, you're saying, God, I need you, I need your grace, then we can go out and serve. Why am I talking about this on the first Sunday? You're probably wondering, about, why, why am I going into this, okay? I feel like this is an incredibly important time for us as a church. One of my greatest fears, I'm going to level with you, in having a building is that we would become like 98% of the other churches in North America who begin to just think about ourselves all the time. That's a real danger. I mean, I'm telling you, that number may be higher than 98%. I'm being generous. Um, There have been studies done on this. Y'all, I mean, here's the deal, though. We really do need this place, and not just for the world, not just for the community. We need this space for us. Like, we really do. Like, we're really tired. I mean, and, and I think we need to admit that. We're tired. We need stability. We need a place where we can grow in grace and rest. We need a place where we can grow and rest and be equipped and be loved and love each other. And that is so important for us. But why? Why do we rest? Why do we need the rest so badly? We don't just need it because COVID kicked us in the tail and we're exhausted. We need to rest because God created rest. Because rest leads to what? It leads to renewed focus and renewed energy so that we can then live out our mission. One of the most beautiful things about being outside was that we were a church without walls. We're a place when you don't have, literally, we have no walls. So physical walls don't exist. So if you want to come in and physical walls are what was barring you from the church in your mind, then we don't have any. So you can come sit in our parking lot. But there's also some other liabilities of of being out in the parking lot, okay? We don't have children's ministry. If it rains, what do we do every single week? What if the live stream breaks down and the feed? And I mean, this morning I was like, okay, I don't have to to bring my gloves and I I don't have to wear my sunglasses. The first time I haven't preached in sunglasses in a year and a half. This is crazy. I mean, stuff like that. My iPad's not going to overheat. I mean, there's stuff that it's like real good gifts that God has given us. But my hope is that we can be a church without walls 
in terms of the way that we view the community, the community would know that we're there for them in ways that we've never been before, that we could really say to them, the YMCA used to have this slogan, we're here to stay. They, they had this slogan, um, I, th- I think it might have been in New York, right when COVID broke out and everybody was exiting the city, and the Y decided to stay. We're here to stay. That's what we're communicating to our community. We're here to stay. We're not going anywhere. We're here to stay. But as we're here to stay, we're going to be here for who? We're going to be here for the vulnerable. We're going to be here for, because we're vulnerable. We want to serve our community in ways we've never been able to serve before. I'm looking at these candles. All right, I'm going to close. Um, first of all, how can we love the vulnerable here? There's, there's a couple ways you can love the physically vulnerable here. One is you can partner with IJM. They need money. You can partner with them and help people get out of slavery. You should look, up, look that up. Uh, there's another way you can do that with World Relief. We're already resettling some Afghan uh, men here in the community. We're also going to have a coat and glove drive uh, on Christmas Eve and on January the 2nd. We're actually not going to have a worship service the day after Christmas on the 26th. Uh, I'm going to upload a sermon for you to be able to watch to encourage you, but we're not going to do the rest. We're going to give everybody a break, okay? I've already preached this sermon before. I'm going to get a break too. I'm just going to tell you some good news about Jesus on camera. You can watch it if you want to watch it. We're going to take a break, but on the 24th and on the 2nd, we're going to have a glove and coat drive. You can bring any coat in your closet that you're not wearing or any gloves. We're going to have a place where you can put it in the lobby. We're going to give all that to World Relief. One of the things that refugees need the most when they come in is they need gloves and coats. So we're going to, we're going to do that. So if you have extra coats, you're cleaning out your closet this time of year, you have an opportunity to do that. Um, there's also an opportunity to love the relationally vulnerable. I want you to think about your neighbors. People feel more isolated than ever, than ever. And I want you to think about your neighbors. How can you love them, even with all the Omicron stuff going on, like, People feel isolated. People are worried. How can you love your neighbor in your neighborhood? And then finally, love the relationally vulnerable here in the church. Is there someone in the church that you perceive might need to hear, I see you, I love you, I appreciate you? It could be in person. It could be a text message. How can you encourage people here in the church? Jesus came to give rest to the weary, and that is us. And as we experience the rest of God, we're going to be renewed in our focus and our energy. We're going to be able to serve one another and serve a lot of people. As we see ourselves as the vulnerable ones, we can go out and love the vulnerable. Let me pray. Lord God, I thank you for your mercy to us. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you see us in our vulnerability and you didn't snuff us out. You didn't cast us aside but you came for us to restore us to yourself. God, we give you praise for the gospel. I pray that we would, if anybody in here is saying in their hearts, yes, that's me, I need grace, and they're saying it for the first time, I pray that they would just reach out and receive it. If they would say, I'm vulnerable, God, yeah, I need your help. Yes, Lord, I pray that you would, you would save them, Lord, that you would, you would show them that they are forgiven of their sins because of what Christ has done for them on the cross. And for anybody here who's just exhausted, I pray that we as a church and every individual here would be restored in every way. We'd have our situation and our lives and our hearts and our souls rectified in every way so that we would be able to demonstrate a generous justice to the world around us. For the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name.